Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Hope everybody had a wonderful holiday season. A new year is on the horizon, and we're wishing you the best in 2020 from the Hazard Ground Podcast. And certainly, we want you guys to help continue to grow this thing as we approach our third anniversary coming up here in a couple of weeks. It'll be three years of telling stories on the Hazard Ground. We can't thank you guys enough for being part of the Hazard Ground community and continuing to support everything we have going on. So continue to support our sponsors. Go to our webpage, hazardground.com. Click on the Sponsors tab. If you got some belated Christmas shopping or holiday shopping you need to get done, still a great place to go and spend it with our sponsors as well as check out our reading list. The perfect gift for the reader in your family if you still have to go get one. And certainly, maybe in 2020, you start a resolution to start reading some more books and check out the great stories from the authors and the people who have appeared here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Make sure you guys interact with us there as well. We love the feedback that you guys always give us. Even if it's about little stuff, technical glitches, something you don't like, let us know. We'll do our best to take care of everything. We love the feedback that we get and certainly love that you guys are so active in the Hazard Ground community. Don't forget about a promotion with Amazon. Still going on. It's not just a holiday thing. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on that Amazon banner. Do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and we donate it right back to some of the amazing charities and foundations and organizations we've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. So you're helping out vets all over America just by going to hazardground.com. Once again, hope everybody has a real kick-ass 2020, and let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a retired Marine Corps corporal who had two deployments, one to Iraq, one in Afghanistan, and ultimately that last deployment to Afghanistan led to the amputation of his right leg below the knee. He is Keontae Story, joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Keontae, welcome, man. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. How's it going? It's well. Normally, we ask people to start out by telling us how they got into the military, and obviously that's important. But I think our audience also needs to know a little bit about your background from your childhood, because it's very uncommon and uh, I think it's what led you ultimately to the Marine Corps. But let's kind of start there as a kid um, and as a young kid. Tell us how you grew up, because I think that's important. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Stockton, California. And upon birth, I was handed over to my second cousins. Try not to get confused in this story. And and that was due to what was in my system. I was a preemie and just kind of how... Uh, the system worked. So I was handed over to my second cousins uh, upon birth. So I actually don't know my biological mother nor father. Uh, as I progressed through life, uh, went into foster care about the age of 10, like officially into foster care, um, where I think was, you know, that, that shift from my childhood where, you know, I, I knew that my mom that was raised me, my second cousin technically, um, to me, she was my mom, you know, those, my sisters, my brothers, um, and it got, to go into foster care. I think, uh, you, you know, I'll be honest. I, I cried my first night in foster care. Let's just get that out of the way. Um, cause it's, it's a hard moment, a hard, sure, hard yeah. moment for me. Um, but 
you know, going through middle school, high school, bully, whatnot, you know, kind of just detached, which now looking back in hindsight, makes a lot of sense going through that, that, that time frame. But that ultimately led me to want to join the military, mostly just to get out of Stockton, to, to get away. Right. Um, so as soon as I graduated, I was, you know, ready to go into the Marine Corps, but initially it wasn't, I was actually not initially joining the Marine Corps. Um, when I first started looking, uh, I was actually almost about to join the army, which I was thankfully, I'm glad I did it. I did not. <laughs> <laughs> Easy though. You're talking to an army guy here. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, so when you talk about detachment and everything as a kid growing up, did you ever have a desire to find your biological parents? No. Why not? Um, I actually, I just had this conversation with someone who also is a foster kid. Uh, and for me, I didn't have the desire because I knew who raised me. I knew who I wanted to be my mom. Um, and so I didn't really break my neck to go out of my way and ask questions like, who's my mom? Because I wasn't clueless to, you know, there being two moms. I wasn't clueless to me not knowing my biological mom or my father. I just didn't – I looked at it as, you know what, they know where I am. I don't know where they are. Uh, so they can come get me. They can come talk to me if they want to, but that never happened. That chance never came for whatever reason on their end. Um, but there's no regret on my end or there's no hatred, discontent. Um, at this point, my biological is dead. That is a confirmed thing. Okay. Um, and my father, I, I've honestly never – I truly never went out of my way to find – nor ask nothing. Um, and so when I was 19, I was legally um, adopted by my second cousin who raised me from birth um, and not um, adopted into foster care. So I was raised by the person who had me since I was zero to 10 mm -hmm. and who I, who I was already calling my mom, my sister, my brothers and whatnot. Um, because that's who they were to me. Right, I, sure. I didn't really care if you added someone else into the mix, but this is my mom, this is my you know sister and whatnot. Okay, so let me ask you a question real quick. Um, how did you find out about your mother dying? Oh, how did I find that? That went out, actually. Um, I think, um, oh, it was when I was actually uh, deployed to Iraq. That's when I had my... Uh, my half sisters and my half siblings reach out to me. Uh, and it was kind of a shock to me. They kind of reached out via, I think it was email. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was like, Oh, I don't even know you guys. And at this point I'm 19. Did you so, believe them when they reached out to you? You're like, like, were you skeptical at all? Oh, I was very skeptical. Cause at that point, you know, you would have people kind of emailing you. Um, I think there was like scams or whatnot going on. Um, but they were like, you know, saying some names and that, that I knew. And I'm like, okay. So I asked my, you know, my mom, my sister, and they're like, oh yeah, these are your half sisters, blah, blah. And I've heard their names, their nicknames before, but to have them reach out, I was just like, why, why now? What is the intent and purpose of this? You know? And then they were just reaching out because I guess they finally w were able to find the time to reach out. And was like, Hey, I we remember you when you were younger. Um, we were actually all together at some point, uh, from what they told me, but I guess at that time I had a little bit of 
mm, uh, I, I wasn't really fully accepting to even get to know them. I was just like sure. kind of past our time. We're adults. We kind of already have our own backgrounds. Knowing you, throwing you into the mix changes nothing or it changes everything. So it, it I had to decide how I wanted to approach that. And, you know, I talked to my sister um, and, you know, I had nothing, like, like I said, I have nothing against them, but at the same time, you know, I don't really care to be involved at this point in my life. Sure. Nothing yeah. personal is just, uh, it's already established. Right. So most I can do, most I want to do is like, Hey, you know, how are you doing? How'd you grow up? But no real bonding I think needs to pursue on that end. And that's just, like I said, it's just one for one we're we're in different States. Um, two, it, it would just probably add another mixture into the pot that I don't feel like mixing. <laughs> no. And that's, that's completely fair. I mean, I, you know, again, no one's walking in your shoes and that decision is completely personal to you. I, I'm just, I'm legitimately curious about the background mm-hmm. of all of it because, um, you know, I, I think it, it leads to you'll see where I'm going later as far as the Marine Corps is concerned. Um, but there, you know, there is a sense of family in the Marines that you get that's different than the sense of family at home. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that that is part of it. You know, I think uh, there is a sense of a different family in the Marines that, you know, people gravitate towards. Yeah, I do. I definitely agree. One more question on the family stuff. When okay. your second cousin um, who became your mom, who was raising you, uh, sent you into foster care. What was that like? I mean, you were 10 years old at the time you said, I mean, you must've been able to grasp the concept of like, why don't you want me here? Like what's, you know, how were you handling all that? Um, I handled that in the way that I felt I knew at that time and at that age. And like I said, it, being 10 years old, you're kind of more aware of what's happening, but you don't necessarily know why. And mm-hmm. for me, I never, I, I, there was, that was another question someone asked me actually recently. And I never went back to want to know the true answer behind that, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I looked at it as, okay, you know, here, you know, you have a single mom raising all of her kids plus this one. And I'm in that age where I'm being a little bit more rebellious, lying, you know, being a little more sneaky, not really, you know, doing that great in school. Uh, you know, teachers are calling my mom and she's working full time. So she she's constantly busy. So the way I looked at it as well, there's no real there's no one to watch me. There's no guidance. There's no, you know, and I, I feared my mom I'm not saying there's no guidance. I, I feared the woman um, love her to death. But still i fear that woman (laughs) and which is respectfully so to me but at the end of the day there was no real she was busy the kids were busy in school and here i'm the youngest so i looked at it as there needs to be more structure and so foster care was somewhere i thought would be yeah what was the overall reason was to give me more structure. Um, and Stockton isn't the greatest of areas. So it made it to me again, it made more sense as I got older. It's like, you know, I'm here because 
there needs to be structure in my life. But going into foster care um, only made me disconnect even more sure. or further. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think it was all good intent. <clears throat> and from that point on, I kind of just stuck to myself. And like I said, there's no resent on any end on my part. I, I tried to, my best to understand the situation, but at the same time, I never went back to truly ask my mom. Cause I can, I can be like, Hey, well, why, why did I go to Foscara? I, I don't think I want to know that answer. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I came to something that made the most sense for me in my mind. And if I think if that was changed in a different way, I would hold probably some resentment possibly. Um, but you know, we never know until I ask, which I won't. <laughs> right. No, and that's, I, I think sometimes you don't ask a question you don't want the answer to. Um, yeah. Do you think that your path to the Marines would have been changed had you not gone to foster care? Hmm. Um. Because you talk about that detachment, right? And, and, yeah. and this is what I mentioned before, you know, part of the military, and we hear this a lot on the podcast. Part of the reason people join is for a sense of belonging. They want to belong to something, right? There, mm-hmm. there are kids out there who are young and don't have a future and don't, ha- don't have a direction and everything else. But if it's anything the military gives you, Army, Marines, Air Force, Navy, whatever it is, it gives you all those things. It gives you a purpose of direction. It gives you yes. a sense of belonging. It gives you a, a second family, so to speak. It gives you substance in your life um, that you're actually mm. accomplishing something. So with all that stuff you talk about, detachment and missing, I, 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 do you ever wonder if, hey, if I had stayed with the family and if I had stayed home that I wouldn't have joined the Marines because maybe you would have had some of that? I think I still would have joined the military, to be perfectly honest. Um and the reason why I say that is all the things that you actually just hit on. I, I wanted to get out of Stockton. And at the same time, I wanted something to give me a purpose outside of just high school. Um, not saying that I was the dumbest kid in high school, but I wasn't the brightest to have scholarships and whatnot, what have you to kind of give me the funds needed to go to college. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't join the military for college, but more so I wanted to understand myself on a different platform rather than, hey, everyone's going to college. That's pretty much where they're going to figure themselves out. There's kind of that time frame. And I wanted to go on the military end to understand myself, but also understand what I'm seeing on the news. Um what I saw on the news, you know, 9-11 growing up and what have you, you know, everyone has this, their opinion about the war and, what, and whatnot, but it, it's perspective on one end and no one knows their end. And I wanted to understand what happens downrange, what happens in war, what are they going through rather than we're assuming they're coming back screwed up or, you know, violent or, you know, like what's truly happening on their side. Um, and so joining was a lot of different variables. It wasn't, I'm joining to, you know, fight for my country. I'm joining for, you know, scholarship or, or schooling or whatever you're, or, or I'm joining for X, Y, and Z. It's, it's multiple thought process um, that led up to me actually joining the Marine Corps. Did you know anything about 
the military, the Marines prior to getting in? Did you research it or you just kind of said, look, uh, this is what I want to do and I'm going for it? <laughs> no. Um, like I said, initially it was almost the Army because the Army had a commercial that, you know, you see the Army, mm-hmm. they have ROTC. Yep. Marine Corps, uh, they're, they're fairly cheap on the commercial end uh, growing up. And I don't remember really seeing a, a commercial of maybe one commercial about the Marine Corps. Um, but I had a friend that was interested in joining the Army as well. He he was researching a lot more because he was graduating a year before me and came across the uh, Army. But then it was right next door to the Marine recruit, uh, recruiting office and came back, told me about it. And he was like, dude, you got to check this out. It's awesome. I, I go check it out. And it was exactly where I felt like I wanted to be, just how the Marines carried themselves, how they approached me, along with the physical demands required for me. Um, I felt this was a place for me where I, I wanted to test myself as a Marine. And I felt the Army, the Navy, those were an easier options for me to excel in. And I wasn't looking for something easy. Uh, and I think the Marine Corps at front of uh, front approach just was just like, this is, this is, this is what I want to be. I want to be a Marine. Did you tell your mom about your decision or you just did it without her? Oh, and, um, I don't think anyone knew initially um until like it was required to sign papers and so initially i told my foster mom which i don't think was that difficult Mm -hmm. um i forgot when i told my mom but i know she wasn't too pleased at first when i told her uh because i don't even know if she asked me what i was going in for like what job wise um but i was initially going for infantry and that was the only thing i even wanted to focus on going into was infantry i didn't even look at the other areas so, uh, yeah, I think I told my foster mom. I'm pretty sure my foster mom told my mom, but I think because I think my mom called me, and I had to explain that I'm joining the military, and she didn't like she didn't like that at first. And my mom to me is everything. So disrespecting her, you know, upsetting her, like those are things I don't want to do. Uh, but it was a hard decision when you have to tell your mom you join the military. She didn't. Initially, from what I recall, she didn't really approve of that. And it was a very difficult decision because I knew I was going to go through it regardless. I don't think I was going to back out of joining the Marines, but it was going to make it easier when, you know, if she was like, okay, you know what, I support you, whatever. Um, And I think that took a couple weeks before we got around to, you know what, you're going to do what you're going to do. You're your own person, your grown, you know, grown a man. And I support you. Um, and she gave me her blessings not too long, right before I went to boot camp, and it made the process that much easier to leave. All right. So when is this time frame wise that you enlist? Um, 2007. Okay. Right after I graduated from high school. Okay. So June, July time frame. And um, I left July of 07. Okay. And you head off to basic. Um, was that all you thought it was going to be? Um, I jump on the bus and the first thing in my mind, actually, I had a friend with me because, you know, 
who doesn't join the Marine Corps without trying to recruit all their friends with them? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I actually had a friend that joined with me. And so he was actually in boot camp with me the the entire time. But, uh, no, I jump on that bus and the first thing that goes to my mind is what did I just get myself into? (laughs) Holy shit. Because, you know, you, you jump on the bus, you go through the whole maps and whatnot. And, you get there at night and all of a sudden some dude comes on there and he starts screaming. You're just like, Oh fuck. Um, there's no other way out of this, huh? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I signed up for, huh? All right. Cool. So I I follow the, you know, the rules, you know, orders, what have you. And that was another thing that people questioned. I wasn't the best person at taking orders from people. Um, Something with me and uh, the law or me and superiors don't really see eye to eye. So <laughs> a lot of people ask me, how did I make it through the military in general? And I, I still have no idea. Um, I always just kind of got in enough trouble to skirt the line. Um, but in boot camp, I actually wanted to excel um, and be guide. But uh, never made. I think I got guide, screwed that up. Uh, so I kind of just fit in with the general population and did my job. <laughs> well, um, so, so after, after, after boot camp, graduating, uh, went to SOI school of infantry, mm-hmm. like felt like immediately after, um, where I went in as an infantry XX or O three XX. And that just, to me, just means infantry unknown. You're, you're going to be infantry, you know, basic rifleman machine gunner, mortarman, whatever. Um, and this is pretty much where you, you can choose <laughs> if you're not told, oddly enough, in School of Infantry. Uh, and initially, I was going to choose to be a machine gunner. They give you a certain date, and you wake up with whatever job you decided to go with, from what I recall. So at you know 0700, you wake up with the machine gunners if you want to be a machine gunner. You know, you, you wake up, you know, zero five, you want to be 0311, something like that, somewhere along those lines. Uh, initially, I wanted to be a machine gunner until I went to the armory and kicked over the Mark 19 um, or the 50. I don't remember what it is. It was uh, had a big main body. I cannot recall. It was one of those two systems. And the two ones are the like, most fun to fire. It's on the final day. And I'm like, yeah, the, the hell I am. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that <laughs> yeah. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was a strong, I was a strong kid. Uh, I could have carried it, but it, you know, it was a 15 mile, you know, hump. I was like on along with packs and all that. I'm like, I'm good. I will carry the saw that carrot. That's like what? 10 pounds, mm-hmm. 12, whatever. And I'll carry all the extra ammo. But no, nah, I'm not carrying that big main body. Um, so I bowed out of being a machine gunner and became an infantryman uh, and excelled pretty well at that. And went uh, so after school of infantry, and this is all in 07, and December of 2007, I was stationed at 3rd Battalion, Sumter Marines in 29 Palms. Okay. My first duty station. By this time, you feel like you settled into the Marine Corps, though. You know, that, that fear of what did I just get myself into is gone by this point, obviously. Um, yeah, for the most part, I mean, every new situation had a fear, uh, a, uh, a moment of fear there with it because it's a new experience. I don't know exactly what I'm 
walking into. So even when I got to my unit, you know, you hear the horror stories of, you know, being hazed and it's, it's, you know, it's a shitty life. The first year you're in the fleet. Um, so I was expected of getting there and just pretty much being boot camp all over again and being yelled at, told where to go, do this, do that. Just now I can go and into my own barracks at the end of the night or chill or have the weekends. And they were just getting that stuff from their deployment. So I got lucky of being there and not having any seniors to really look over us. So had a good, what, two weeks of freedom <laughs> mm-hmm. before they came back from their libo. And yeah, once they got back, it was kind of a, a shit show on that end. <laughs> So you're at 29 Palms, and within a year, you deployed to Iraq, correct? Uh, yeah. All right. So what was that mission? Where are you headed? What did you know? So in 2008, we're doing the work up there, and I'm with India Company at this time. Um, oh, side note, I was also stationed with uh, my friend who actually told me about the Marine Corps uh, initially, if you remember that part of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually was stationed with him. Uh, I got lucky. We were stationed. That's 29 Palms. Yeah, and 29 Palms. Wow. Same battalion, um, same company, just different different unit or different team. So it was cool to kind of come across him and, you know, see him, hang out with him. But uh, we were doing a workout for Haditha in 2008, 2009, uh, where we had a large area to operate and kind of hold as far as I can recall right now. And that was a pretty chill deployment, to be honest, in comparison to Afghanistan. Uh, A few pop shots here and there, but most of it was a lot of football patrol, you know, shaking hand, kissing babies, uh, speaking with the local populace. That was primarily our missions on a day-to-day basis. I know you said most of it was, you know, meeting with the populace, but how much of contact with the enemy did you see? Uh, on my end, none. Really? Like, I, none. <laughs> were, you, none. were you one of those guys who was kind of chomping at the bit, like you wanted something to happen, so to speak? Yeah. Um, you're, you're waiting for something to happen, but, you know, at the time we get there, we know that we're pulling out of Iraq. Everything's popping off in Afghanistan. Um, Afghanistan, I think, what was it? One seven was there. So even while we were there, we're hearing about things happening in Afghanistan because at some point we almost had to relieve our radio equipment to send to Afghanistan. So we knew where all the fun was happening and it just wasn't where we were at the time. Um, so it was just kind of, you know, let's try and went over the hearts and minds of the local populace to make sure they understand we're on their side, but it's, they didn't want us there to begin with. So it's eventually going to go back the way that it was. So it it was a very, to say the least, a very simple deployment uh, in Iraq. Um, So once we got back from that deployment, I actually put in a, uh, I wanted to be a part of uh, Scout Snipers uh, for the Afghanistan deployment. So we do a workup. Well, once we figure out that we're going to Afghanistan, initially 3-7 was told we're going to get on it, 
going to go on a Mew, uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit um, mm-hmm. afloat, which would be like the first and forever for this unit, um, just because it's such a, a combat deployed unit, very heavily combat deployable unit. Um, so we're just starting to work out, but then come to find out we're actually going to Afghanistan uh, probably few months after we find out we're initially doing a Mew. Were you excited which, about that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, I think everyone was excited about that because being a combat, like being infantry, the last thing you want to do is go on a Mew. Uh, just because it has nothing to do with your training, nothing you signed up to, to be doing. It's just, it's, it, it just seems, it sounds boring. Um, but I was excited to kind of like, oh, I get to travel, see other places, which is, uh, another factor of why I joined the Marine Corps. Right. So uh, I was looking on that end of it, decided it was being boring. I was like, you know what? I'm out of harm's way. I'm sure my mom would be okay with this. I can see other location, you know, see other ports, which to me, that was traveling better than what I would experience any other way. But once we were told they were going to Afghanistan, then it was like, you know, we're, constantly training day in day out um because we lost a few months working out for something else uh so we're constantly training and 29 palms is like the best training environment we're like this is our backyard so we were never short on training days unless it was just too hot like too too hot like black flag over 115 20 degrees hot the only time we weren't training if it was like 110 we're light PT. Right. We're still training. <laughs> um, and so uh, once I got back, you know, I, I put in a, uh, go through the whole scout sniper process, go through the whole in-doc, pass all that. Um, and I'm excited to be working with a smaller team now. Um, great guys. Uh, go back and retake my ASVAB uh, because I wanted to go to the schoolhouse and pass that with the higher uh, points just to go to schoolhouse. Like I only took this, that test, which is initially what you take to get into the Marine Corps. I retook that same test just so I can go to the schoolhouse because that's how much I really want to be a scout sniper and get there to come to find out that the battalion submitted my paperwork late or something was wrong, but my slot had to be taken at that time because things weren't up to par. And I was heavily pissed off and disappointed at the same time. Um, and it became kind of just kind of like whatever. I was like, okay, I'm just going to go back to, you know, stay scout sniper uh, platoon and just be a pig, which is just a shortened version of not being a scout sniper. <laughs> right. Um, and I was okay with that. Um, but when they ended up building a team, this is all part of the workup for Afghanistan. I'm just giving you a little in between. Sure. No, go ahead. Uh, so, they ended up doing a, a kind of a pool from every company to create a, a substance for PSD. I think it was like personal security attachment for the BC or what have you. And we're just their own personal security detail. That's all that was. Um, and I didn't really agree with that, um, who they had in charge. I didn't really vibe with, felt that I should be in a more leadership position um, just because what we were doing were infantry tactics. The people that had, that had uh, in charge of us were fairly new to the unit. I felt that 
who we had there were um, more than enough to lead. And so we just didn't see eye to eye. They kicked me out. <laughs> sure. Really? Of it. I, as you can tell, this is like when I said that I don't do well with, you know, authority figures in some instances. This is one of them. Um, and so they kicked me out and I go to Lima Company right before deployment. And I don't know Lima Company. I don't know anyone from Lima, um, which I was kind of shocked because I was like, why wouldn't they send me back to another company that I'm used to? But, you know, whatever, whatever. So I'm in Lima Company now getting ready to like – I probably feel like this is a month before we leave because we've already done everything else. We've done our heavy training. We've done our big main training with the company, battalion. Like we've done all those trainings. So yeah, it had to be a month before we leave for Afghanistan. And I'm with a whole other company I don't know. And now I'm with Lima Company. We fly over to Afghanistan. Um and there's that. <laughs> right. Okay. So when do you get to Afghanistan? Uh, we get to Afghanistan, what was it, like March of 2010. Okay. And typically your deployments as Marines are only about what, eight or nine months? No, actually, I think sometimes shorter than that. Okay. I, I, I think six to eight months, but I, I might be wrong. I think it just depends. Well, the, I'll get to the reason why I'm asking in a moment because you get there in March. So what's your mission when you get there and, and uh, what's the environment like as soon as you hit ground? Um, we, landed, um, we land, we go to an air base. So it's pretty chill. We're just waiting to be pitched out to our area of operation, which uh, for whatever reason, again, we have a very large area of operation where – you know, companies are scattered at different locations. Um, I don't remember what our initial mission was. We just expected to have heavy contact, like once we're out of the wire, once we're on our own, doing our own thing. Um, and it was a lot more mobile rather than Iraq was a lot more foot mobile. Right. We're patrolling a lot. This is a little bit more up armor vehicles, get out, still doing foot mobile patrols, but, you know, we're being transported now. They have our own vehicles to transport ourselves. Uh, and we go we, – we do a few missions that not a lot happened. There was a mission where we received pop shots, and I think, I think the initial contact was we were mortared. <laughs> I think how, that's how that started. We were mortared. I think we were um, – I think we were uh, scouting or overlooking an area. We were hit by a mortar, and no one was injured, and we pursued the area, but nothing came of it as far as I remember. I think we, um, I think we eliminated the enemy, if I can recall, but nothing more than that. I think that's how that, that ended it. Uh, that was like our first – at least that was what I can remember, my first full engagement, like – Bumping and bounding, running, machine guns firing overhead, um, assaulting the enemy, assaulting a location uh, before hitting Sangin. And so before Sangin, before we get to Sangin where the Brits are, everything was, you know, patrols. It, it was pop shots here and there, but nothing crazy, nothing epic, nothing, right. you know, that I would say, like, this is awesome. Um, 
So we get to singing, and at, now at this point, I'm a team leader. Uh, so I have my junior Marines, and pretty much I have like the best team ever because as I was going through uh, all my time enlisted, I like I remember I said I wanted to be a machine gunner. Mm-hmm. Um, I was still carrying the saw for a temporary time, um, but then I had one guy who had a precision rifle for long range, and then I had another machine gunner, and then I think I had a 203, and then when we patrolled, we also had machine gunners with us. So it was an epic squad (laughs) that I got to be in charge of that I loved because I was like, I enjoy this. Um, So we hit Sagan, and we're we're talking with the Brits. We're getting to know the Brits. We're trying to figure out what what where their line that they haven't crossed that they're talking about, which is not that far outside that wire. Um, and we're going there to relieve the Brits because pretty much the Brits are they're doing their job, but they're just not pushing hard enough. And we get there, and you know we're we're preparing for pretty much battle at this point. Like this is where. We walk into Afghanistan thinking this is what it's going to be, but when we hit Sangin, this is exactly what Afghanistan, what we expected it to be, was we walk out of the wire, heavy contact, it's 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 a firefight, it's a shit show, it's everything. Um, this does not happen until about this point. So we're uh, understanding the Brits, and sure enough. Um, we get every, you know, all of our battalion to this location and we push out and exactly what we wanted. Um, it's a firefight. They haven't pushed past a certain, a certain line. We push past that and it's hell breaks loose. Um, cause I remember that day so well, so well, um, our team wasn't completely there for whatever reason. Um, I don't know where they were. Uh, but we were undermanned for our team. So we were actually considered the Kazvac litter team. And as we're pushing out with the rest of the guys, people were, uh, you know, our guys get shot. No one, no KIA at this point, just got shot wounds. Uh, we show some litter and we're, you know, running guys back into base. We got air support. We got mortars, you know, lining up. It's a complete full battalion push at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, every system is being operated. Um, just, and this is like an area we've like, what, 10 minutes outside of the wire of this compound. It it was, it was nuts. Um, and this lasted, like I said, um, I felt like probably a good hour, but I'm pretty sure it lasted longer than that. Um, cause I feel like every day was like the same exact thing. We're pushing, we're pushing and we're pushing further further and further and now our team gets there now we're pushed out bounding you know clearing buildings pushing through and then we became the furthest company out um and saying and so we're in no man's land like no one knows what's past this area uh we take over a compound um an idea is triggered <laughs> um our guy is almost blown off a wall thank god he wasn't on the ground he was actually scouting a wall uh, grenades are being tossed over by kids into our compound. Um, it was, it was, uh, 
a hell of a, a place to be. Right. So had anybody sustained any casualties at this point? Mm, yeah, we, we had a few casualties, but no deaths, just gunshot wounds. Um, Did any of that sort of unnerve you at all? Mm, did it unnerve me? I'm pretty sure I was nervous. I'm pretty sure I was scared for my guys. Like, what am I going to go? And I think for me, as long as I didn't go via sniper ID, I think I was going to be fine because those are the two things you can't see. Uh, so as long as I had a fighting chance, I was going to fight. So in my mind, I don't think I cared much as long as my guys were good and I don't get taken out by something I can't actually retaliate towards. Sure. Uh, so once we hit our compound, our company pushes out a little bit further than bounce back. And this is about the time where I'm injured. Well, I was going to uh, say, that's where I was getting to because it, it happens in September. How close is that to the end of your deployment? Uh, one month. We were already yeah. doing left seat, right seat. That's why we I was. I asked that earlier about getting there in March and how long your deployments were because all of us kind of know who have been deployed you know, that, that calendar starts getting real big. You know, it starts to tick real fast when you get in that last 30 days. Um, yeah. You know, you're, you know you're, you're so close to getting the heck out of there. Yep. And so, yeah, we're already, you know, who, who was releasing this? I think it was 3-5. Um, they're already coming in. They're already there. I don't even know what I said. They're, they're physically there. Um, their advon was already there, so their advance party. Right. And I think – they're just trying to figure out the area. And so we're, we're starting to push backwards because we're, we're trying to get back regroup. And I think overall, maybe do one last thing and then we were done. So we had countdown clock 30 days, probably at best. Sure. So tell me about that morning in September when you get injured, what happens? How is, how does that day begin? Yeah. So we get word, I think the night before or in the morning of that we have, we have intel that the Taliban or um, opposing forces are trying to ambush our location. Uh, because we are the furthest small team out right now, we're, I wouldn't even say we're sitting ducks, but we, like, our support is like five minutes further behind us. So it would take some time for them to get to us or 10 minutes behind us or whatever. Um, and so we decided to set up a satellite patrol and we're going to set up a satellite patrol to push out hunker down for early morning, be very quiet. And then if we were ambushed, we're going to ambush this ambush. So we do that. I wake up, I have a five hour energy drink in my pocket. For some reason I don't drink it because it doesn't sound like the best day. Literally what I tell myself is if I drink this, something's going to happen. I'm going to bleed out. Don't ask me why that comes to mind. It comes to mind. I, <laughs> um, and I confirmed that same story with actually another friend of mine who was with me. Um, and he, 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 he validates. He's like, yeah, something was in your pocket. And I remember it was five hour energy drink that I chose not to drink for that specific reason. So we go out in the morning patrol and we're, I'm seeing like five fifty quarter on the doors. And I'm like, why is that there? And I'm like, Oh yeah, we had a, you know, our other team was in front of us. They were marking doors probably as they cleared them out. But then the first thought was, why Why was 550 quarter on the door? And 550 quarter is nothing more than just, you know, 
shoestring for anyone who that's a shortened version of it that can hold up to 550 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I, so I, I thought nothing of it, but something like a sense kind of kicked in and I was like, this just doesn't feel right. Something's off. Um, but we, so we moved past this door and our team kicks down a door, go inside. I don't know why they chose building, but I guess it's irrelevant at this point. Um, kicks down a door, goes inside. At this point, we're with 12 Marines, three Afghan National Army, uh, give or take. And I'm with my junior Marine outside um, as a team leader. So I set him down. He has a saw and we're providing outer security. So we're looking outwards um, while everyone else goes inside takes care of business. It's either going to be, Hey, we're taking over this building or we're leaving. But for whatever reason, it felt like they were in the, that building for quite some time and me not getting any information. We're trying to be quiet. So we're keeping the radio chatter very, very to a minimum. Uh, repositioning my dreamer. And I'm like, Hey, I'll be right back. It shouldn't take no more than five, 10 seconds at best. Um, to walk back and be like, yo, what are we doing? What's our next move? So I can, you know, look ahead. Uh, but I actually never made it into that building. Um, so, as I said, there's 12 Marines plus ANA leaving two out. So 11 or so Marines or 10 Marines go inside and they kick down this door. This door takes up part of this hallway to give you guys a visual. So the pathway is very limited. So you can't really screw up the walking pattern. It's just kind of laid out for you because the door is already taking up the large section of the uh, the hallway. So I follow that pathway and the ID either was very deep, too deep, or for whatever reason, I just kicked it just right. And that triggers the ID um, three steps into this building. So everyone either steps over it. It's very too deep, doesn't trigger whatever. Um, but that thing was meant for me. Um, but it goes off. And at first I thought I wasn't exactly sure what just happened when this ID goes off. And the first thing, <laughs> the first thing that happens is that my, I'm actually, um, dirt falls in my ear. So that's the first thing that happens after like hitting the ground, ears ringing, dirt falls in my ear. And I'm, I'm probably the most pissed at this moment in time about that. Um, there's a lot more things to be pissed off about, but I'm really pissed off that dirt just fell in my ear right now. But I think that kept me conscious. So I get my breath. I'm like, what just happened? My ears are ringing. I'm laying down. I'm like, okay, ID, obviously. Um, so I try to sit up because I I'm, I can't catch my breath. I'm like struggling to try to breathe now. The, air was, the wind was just not completely out of me. So I push myself with my feet, trying to sit up against the side of the wall. Um, but my feet aren't really doing what I'm telling them to do. So as I'm laying there, I'm like, okay, possibly a double amputee because my feet aren't doing what I'm telling them to do. To do. Um, I'm like, all right, you know what? Calm the heart, relax. Is anybody and, around you at this point or are you just, you're doing this all by yourself? I'm doing this part. This is all happening in my mind okay. uh, as I'm laying there, but there's, my guys are still right right around me this is they're not too far um but they have to wait for the dirt to settle they can't see um so initially when this id goes off no one calls out stories hit no one knows that i'm even injured yet just yet because they can't see 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then once the dirt settled, which probably took about maybe 10, 15 seconds for them to fully see, like, and I think it was my Jeremy Marine because obviously he was the only other person um, outside. I think he calls out that I'm hit. He's like, story set, story set. Um, and then I think the inside team also calls it, and they, the nearest person's like, stories hit, stories hit. So Nylon's being rung, rung up. And like I said, as I'm laying there, I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, again, I give myself the sign of the cross. I'm alive. I can still keep fighting. But I got to calm myself down. I was like, my doc is going to get to me. We have a, a stellar doc. We have a former, you know, Navy corpsman who knows this shit very, very well. So I'm not even concerned in the lightest of will they get to me and take care of me. I know they will. Mm-hmm. Um, but first I was like, let me calm myself down because if I freak out, they're going to freak out. So I remain calm. I assess myself, call, try to calm my heart rate, try to calm my breathing. And once the corpsman gets to me, I'm like, hey, this is what I'm feeling. This is what's going on, blah, blah. He asked me, you know, the basics, you know, name, rank, whatever. Um, just so he knows, like, hey, he's conscious. I give him more information so he knows, like, hey, I'm well aware of that what's what's going on. Um, so that way he can do his job and not have to worry about anything else. Because if it becomes a hectic situation, then, you know, he's going to panic because I believe I was the first casualty he worked on. I could be wrong, but I believe he was with us the whole entire time. I'm the first casualty he worked on. So, uh, so I remain calm. I think, and like I said, I think that if I remain calm, my team remain calm, and that's exactly what happened. I remain calm and kept everyone else calm. Uh, did my best to still, you know, talk to the team while they're, you know, put me on the litter, moving me, and get me to hire uh, Echelon of Care. And I, I think remaining calm helped the rest of the team remain calm. That way, it was done efficiently at that time. Okay. So now that you, I mean, at any point in time, do you feel like I'm going to die or you, that doesn't enter your head? Um, no, actually, uh, because I gave, so I gave myself this, like I said, it's the sign of the cross. And the first thing I told me, I told myself, was like, I'm not going to die. Not, I'm not going to die here. If I did anywhere else, that's okay, but I'm not going to die here. Not while I'm still breathing. And once uh, they, you know, transport me to the higher echelon care, I'm like, I'm telling Doc, I'm like, I think I'm going to shock. He's like, you're not going to shock. I was like, okay. <laughs> um, they're transporting me to higher echelon care. They're doing all, you know, making sure I'm stable all the way through. But once, uh, once I get on that bird, in this entire process, it's my pain is intensifying. So the, that burning sensation in my leg is just getting hotter and hotter and hotter. Um, it literally feels like I'm standing on top of a fire. And to give you a, a visual even of what my leg looked like, I like to describe it as if you took a chicken bone, wrapped it in camis, and broke the chicken bone. And you have fragmented, you know, um, tibia, fibia, you know, poking through the skin. Uh, that's what I remember seeing. So this pain is intensifying, but... Mm-hmm. No, I don't. I don't think of I even surrendering to death until I'm actually on the bird being transported outside of our area. Now, um, once I'm on the bird, I'm holding this nurse's hand, this flight nurse, and I'm squeezing it like death grip. 
because because I'm in so much pain that um I just I didn't really want to, I didn't want to tolerate it anymore. And that's what that kind of kind of came down to. It's just like, you know what, I'm I'm tired. At this point I'm on a I'm on a bird. I think I think we've done all we need to do. I'm gonna take a nap now. And and so, to, but you at this point have succumbed to the fact that you think you're losing both your legs, correct? Yeah, I still think I'm losing both my legs. Okay. Um, so I I black out on the flight, and if I woke up at that point, I don't think I cared. I was like, I I, I stayed awake. I think we've done as much as we could do at this point. I'm I'm good. I'm going to take a nap. I'm tired. Um, I'm tired of trying to stay awake and enduring that amount of pain. Um. But I wake up, my leg is completely amputated. I have no idea. Someone asked me recently too, how 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 long were you out for? And I never doubt, thought about that. Um, but when I woke up, my leg, the re- remaining of my leg was completely removed. It was actually just mostly hanging on my flesh. And my left leg was uh, wrapped in another type of uh, system. Um, so my left leg was not am- amputated, but it was um, damaged. Um, there actually is a scar in the back of my leg. I remember waking up asking the doctor how that happened. He's like, I don't know. You were blown up. How the hell how, how am I supposed to know? <laughs> the short answer is you were blown up. That's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> so my left leg is still good, but it's not, it, it has its own amount of damage to it, but my right leg was completely amputated. Um, when I wake up at the hospital, um, and I wake up in, uh, the hospital in Afghanistan. Um, I think it was Bastion. Mm-hmm. I think that's the name of the hospital, Bastion Hospital. Anyways, um, I wake up with one of my former lieutenants, and I'm so high off morphine and all the other drugs that I remember just waking up like, what's up, my nigga? And it's funny to say that because as everyone knows me, like I'm, I'm a decently well-spoken kind of guy. But they've never seen me say even anything slightest to those those words. I'm not. It's not part of my you know character. So it was it was a good laugh out of waking up and you know seeing my lieutenant, my leg, and everyone who was there. Um, it was a good you know laugh for everyone, uh, and we kind of find out you know he's in there for a concussion. Um, I'm I'm stable. I'm good. I'm talking. I get to call my mom, and I don't think she answers, so I call my other friend that did remember the number two, and come. And apparently, there was a telephone game that was played to where by the time I even got back to the states, I was double amputee, mangled, dead. <laughs> who, who knows what that game they were playing to where eventually one of my friends was just like, "Look, we got to go to the damn source." And they eventually go to my mom and find out that he's just missing a leg. <laughs> he's alive and well. He's just missing a leg. Um, and then I get transported into Bethesda Hospital in uh, Maryland mm-hmm. from that from Afghanistan to Germany to Maryland. So you seem to remember a lot of this. Is there any point that you don't remember anything? Mm, no. Um, everything I remember, I, I, I'm remembering to the best of my ability. Um like, but there wasn't a span where you just like I was out. I mean, obviously on the flight back you were out, right? Yeah, yeah, I was out on the flight back. But no, I for the most part I remember. Um, I remember fragments of where I was 
you'd wake up uh, in and out of my injury. Actually, even when I was in Germany, I had a friend that was in the army. Um, he actually was happened to be there and visit me when I was in the hospital for that. However long I was there for, I, I have like time wise, I don't know where I was in those location like Bastion. I don't know how long I was there for that time wise. I just know I was there. Um, and from what I remember, um, launched still Germany. Um, I don't know how long I was there for. I, I felt like I was there for a few, like eight hours, but I could have been there for a week for all I know. Gotcha. Um, and then, um, Bethesda, Maryland is where I had my longest stay. And that's where my mom got to fly out there and, uh, be in the hospital with me. When you first wake up and you look down and you see that one leg is amputated, what's your first thoughts? Um, my guys are still out there. <laughs> That's fair. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think there was a, a a conscious thought of "Holy shit, I'm an amputee." Um, until months, months later, I think initial thought was my guys are still out there fighting. Like hopefully like all I, all I'm thinking of like, what can I do? What can I do? And I'm like, conclusion wise, like both my legs are in, you know, apparatus. I, they can't do anything. I couldn't do anything if I wanted to, couldn't crawl if I tried. So you kind of just surrender that idea to, I, I hope my guys, you know, get back safe. They're, they're okay. And they're, you know, that's, there's no more contact from this point forward. Just to ease my mind, there's no more fighting. Um, but as I, as I'm in Bethesda, uh, hospital, you know, uh, we have guys from my unit coming in, you know, ID shrapnel to the face. Um, who was the other guy that came in? There was another guy that came in too while I'm there, you know, and you know, they, you know, fill me in on what's happened and what felt like only a month left of deployment, but two weeks, like a week or so after I was injured. Um, actually one guy who was injured actually ended up being in the same hospital with me too. And he was part of my actual team. Uh, and so he got to fill me in on what happened after the math of me being injured. But apparently our, our unit had one more, uh, last, uh, I don't, I don't want to say last stand cause that just sounds way too dramatic <laughs> to use. Um, one last fight and they were clearing out, uh, clearing a path. Uh, for whatever reason, and apparently it ended up being an ambush to where it, they had to um, call in air support and had a danger close mission, which is they're dropping in, you know, air, they're dropping um, bombs like within I forgot like within close proximity proximity of friendly units. So it's not something you ever call unless it's like your lastest effort. Like shit apparently hit the fan pretty bad. Um, but I think the story from that one was it was uh, that started off by walking to a building and a stepped on an ID casualties immediately from the, on their end. And then it was just an ambush and a firefight and then a danger close mission from what I, from what they told me. So right. that might be kind of skewed, but that's what I remember them telling me. Um, but to go back to answer your question, no, I don't think I even, until months later, I don't, I didn't even think about me missing my leg. It was more of, 
my guys are still out there fighting and then seeing them come in, that was just like, well, I couldn't do anything anyways. Right. To that end, um, when you talk about the realization of it, you know, a lot of people in your situation, uh, go through a whole myriad of emotions. Uh, they cycle through them all. Um, but you know, depression and grief and all that other stuff certainly are, are the paramount ones. How did you deal with all that? Um, those didn't, those didn't hit me into the back end. So once, uh, from Bethesda, we go to, we, you know, change scenes to Balboa Hospital here in San Diego, where I still now reside in San Diego. Um, once I'm, you know, considered outpatient, you know, I have my wheelchair, um, I go to the World War Battalion, I'm now part of their uh, attachment, and my job now is just go to appointments. And once I start going to my appointments on my own, once I realized like how different my life is, how annoying this wheelchair crutches is, um, that's when those emotions start to hit me is when I'm in my room, um, you know, going, you know, getting up and trying to do things differently. I wasn't able to just get up and walk or it was a lot of pain. So as I'm dealing with this, you know, being in a lot of pain, this whole realization, like I'm an actual amputee now, like where, where does my life go from here? Um, cause I felt, I thought I was, just, cause I felt I was just going to get pushed out of the Marine Corps either way, being an amputee. Um, I didn't really know. I questioned God every waking moment. I, w- I would wake up and question God, damn God, shit, I'd shake hands with the devil, find anything to find something that makes sense of my existence. Because at a certain point I was just like, I don't, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be alive. Like dying felt way much easier than just living through this bombardment of emotions that you're constantly ringing through your head that trying to make sense of what's next what goes on from now from here um and so and this typically just happens in my room like when i leave my room you know i I like to describe it as putting on a mask and i'd put on a mask in front of my physical therapist you know my friends, the battalion, what have you, um, because we're all going through our own problems. And the last thing I felt like no one needs to know what I'm going through. Like, I don't even know what I'm going through. So, but every waking moment, I was just questioning God, just trying to find a purpose for my existence. Um, until, you know, I, I'm abusing my pain meds um, while somehow still trying to keep myself busy yeah I even started to register for classes uh that was offered just to stay busy while going to my appointments and going to classes at night um and so and and all of this the short answer comes down to i wake up one day and i was just like i i was like what makes me happy kind of like just what am i here for my existence because Suicide is like ringing through my mind like daily at this point. So mm-hmm. I was like, I need, I need something. I need some type of answer, something. Um, so I was like, what makes me, wait, what makes me happy? And I felt that was a good starting point. And I kind of kept waking up every day, asking myself the same question: What makes me happy? And it kind of comes short answer to, I enjoyed making people happy. Like that's what made me happy: um, helping others, working with others, um, making them happy, laugh, 
Um, that's what made me happy. I, I, I didn't, I don't, I, I don't think I have much self care into myself more than what can I do for others? Uh, and then eventually with that answer, probably shortly just kicked my meds cold, cold Turkey. And I was like, I need to get out of this situation because I'm not going to be, you know, you know, addicted to medication because more so I, I was born on drugs. So the last thing I want to be is how I was created or born. Um, so I kick all when my When you meds. say you were born on drugs, that's because your biological mother was an addict at yeah. the time she had you, correct? I just want to clarify for the audience. I wouldn't say she was an addict, but she she dabbled. We'll, we'll say dabbled in drugs and alcohol sure, um, okay. when I was being conceived. Because I don't know the truth. I don't know the full answer. Right, I just okay. know what I know. Um, but so to me, it was just one of those things where it's like, that's not, that's not going to be a me. I'm not going to turn out like that. Um, so I take my med school Turkey and pursue sports, um, sports. Cause at that time I was like, I just want to get out of my room. I want to be active. I want to do things. Um, so pursuing the Paralympic sports or Paralympic camps that were offered allowed me to travel, which is what I wanted to do. Um, so it helped me go different States, see different areas. Um, and as well, it put me around people who had the same mindset of getting back, being active and being better, even though we're all missing an appendage and we're all going through our own sorts of shit in our own mind. You know, that was to me a good sort, like a good camaraderie right. that I wanted to be around of. Um, so with these Paralympic camps, that kind of just started to be where I was like, okay, I'm happy doing these. And one of the head Paralympic committee personnel after running a track meet one day in North Carolina, I don't know, um, comes up to me and she was like, Hey, do you have a running leg? And I was like, no, because at this time I was only walking on my everyday walking leg. Um, so I wasn't really in a, a springy running blade uh, for running. I was just like, I'm just happy to be here. So she tells me that I, she's like, you have, you have a lot of potential. I'm like, okay. And go back. I tell my physical therapist about this, come to find out our agility coach who you have to go through in order to, uh, get approved, uh, for the running leg is actually a two time gold medalist Olympic, um, track athlete. So I was like, all right, well, this is pretty cool. So I tell him about it and I start pursuing the Paralympic, um, Paralympics as a track athlete in the 100, 200, and 400 meters. And he's, he was my coach to start off with. Um, and kind of sports became my savior at that point because I didn't really like, and I didn't really care too much about going to physical therapy. A lot of the time I went to PT mainly because of Tommy, which was a therapy dog there. Right. Um, <laughs> um, that was most of my time spent in physical therapy and like mental therapy and what have you. But sports became that place for me where I would go and I was truly happy competing, um, training, working. And in this whole process, uh, it was more of, I, I wanted a challenge. Um, like what, 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 
challenges can I, you know, break through? What barriers can I knock down? Like you set them in front of me, like, let's go. Uh, and so from that point, I kind of just kept doing sports and, you know, you know, climbed two of the seven summits, you know, my first being in Antarctica back in 2013 and then Kilimanjaro along with other little mountains in between um, and pursuing the Paralympics full time as a track athlete and running, you know, I think I did a marathon, my first Marine Corps marathon, probably the only marathon I wanted to run uh, worthwhile running in my opinion, even now. Um, you know, just, just challenging myself, just pushing my body to those limits. Um, and Antarctica had to be like that big turning point for my athletic, I wouldn't say athletic career, but as an athlete and as a, uh, as for overall turning point in my situation that like that was the biggest turning point was in Antarctica on that mountain. Um, and that ended up being because we're, you know, we, we trained pretty hard. I made nationals to go in Indianapolis and then I start pursuing, um, mountaineering with, um, the heroes project which their mountain was in Antarctica for 2013, January. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mount Vinton. And one of the guys in the hospital, bilateral, um, reached out to me. He's like, hey, you want to do this? And I'm like, sure, why not? So anyways, long story short, we get, we're in Antarctica. I'm hiking, you know, 25, 50 pounds on a sled, 25 pounds or so on my back. We're pulling this up the mountain. Like, I'm, I'm trained, ready to go. But... I'm in San Diego. There's no snow. <laughs> there's no altitude. <laughs> um, there's just things you can't prepare for. But I was ready to go. I brought my Marine Corps flag with me that I wanted to get to the summit. And I'm thinking I'm I'm shit hot, to be dead honest. I think I'm ready to go. Tackle this mountain. Easy peasy. Not that hard. It, it became <laughs> the hardest thing I probably did <laughs> as an amputee at that point. Very quickly. Um, just because walking through the snow and the glacier, it was just a different sensation, different feeling. So we're going up, we're moving from, we may get to camp one. We're moving up to high camp, which requires this technical, um, climb to get, you know, you're pulling yourself up, repelling upward. It's all right. Anyways, ice axe. It's a, it's probably the best part of the climb in my opinion. Um, there's a photo of it actually where I'm on it. Um, what you can see my other prosthetic on the side of my back, my backpack, but, um, it was that it was right before we pushed the summit. I'm thinking to myself, like, I'm, I'm tired. Like, I'm just not used to this. I'm like, I'm physically, emotionally just tired. And I'm laughing to myself along the way, just trying to keep myself busy, entertained. And for some reason, like it kind of clicks in my mind. I'm like, you know what? I can turn around right now. And I've accomplished more than I thought I would ever do as an amputee by far. And, but to me, that wasn't good enough. So I started to question, I'm like, why am I, why am I here? Like, what am I doing on this mountain? Like I'm suffering for a reason. What am I suffering for? And, you know, you start with, you know, these questions and they, they just don't seem to fit. They, they don't, satisfy me and it comes to a a 
a question I can't remember exactly, but what satisfies my answer and pursuing that was I'm not doing this for me. It started off as for me, but it's no longer for me. Um, I want to empower. I want to show other amputees back in the hospital that they can do the same thing that I'm doing right now. And we're not going to let our injury define us. We're going to, you know, define our injury. But I had to also think like it took me a hell. It took me to get. It took me being here to get to this point. But it doesn't mean that I can't share this with other guys and. Hopefully they can, you know, do the same thing I did, you know, kick their meds and find their own passion. Right. So but, what would you say to somebody who's a vet now who's struggling? Reach out. Um, reach out to anyone that you trust. Um, and I emphasize trust. Um, because if you're struggling, like you're going to want to talk to someone that you trust that you know isn't going to question, judge, or, you know, try and fix your problems like right there on the spot. You just reach out to someone that's going to actually listen and be like, all right, dude, I, 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 I'm understanding where you're going or, Hey man, I'm sorry. I, 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 I didn't go through that same situation. I know, I don't know exactly what you're going through, but I'm here to listen. Let's go grab a beer. Let's go, let's go. You know, let's go, let's go up a mountain. Let's go, let's go to the gym. Let's go for a swim. Let's go, you know, sit in the hot tub. Let's go do something together, you know, get them out of that space. Um, because I, I feel like a lot of veterans, you want to hold on to your shit because that's for like, that's what we do. We want to hold on to shit. We want to be tough. We want to be hard asses. I don't need help. I'm not struggling. You know, I'm just being weak. And that's not the case. You know, it's not the case at all. Like you holding on to your shit, not talking about it, you know, like, yeah, it's going to be hard. Cause only it's only happening in your mind. You know, there's no place for this information. There's no where for this, you know, tragedy to be vented off to. And if you're truly struggling, I would say, talk to someone, reach out to someone that you trust. Um, who will understand you because you're not going through this by yourself. You're choosing to go by the, go through this by yourself. You truly are. This is a choice decision to go through this by yourself, but it doesn't have to be. Um, and I, and I, and I, and I'm, you know, part of that, you know, situation too. Like when I went through my own shit, like, you know, I have refused to go to therapy. I refuse to talk to anyone about what I'm going through because I looked at it as, oh, they won't understand. They won't get it. But it, I come to find out and learn as time goes on. It doesn't matter if they understand. It doesn't matter if they truly, to the T, know exactly what you're talking about. They're willing to understand mm-hmm. and they're willing to listen. And I think that's the biggest thing is that, hey – these people are willing to listen and understand. They don't have to fully understand what you're saying, but they are there to listen at the end of the day for you to get it off your chest, for you to get it out loud, for you to say whatever you're going to say. And once it's out there, it's, it is re- relieving 
to kind of vocalize it out loud. But it is painful to sit and torment yourself silently with the same information. So, yeah, reach out to someone. Hell, like I tell everyone, reach out to me. I give people my personal number. Call me. I can care less. I will. I will listen. I will sit here till the morning of. Like you know, I had one of my guys that actually you know he he's went through something. I sat up with the morning with them sipping whiskey. I was like, all right, you know, like I, he's way over there. I'm on the phone. We'll we'll hang out together. We'll talk it out. But they have to want to open those doors. No one can force anyone to open those doors. No one and forcing someone to try to open those doors is you kind of push them backwards, right? Because you know they don't they don't want to, you know, go through those doors just yet. They don't know what's on the other side. They they don't want to open those doors probably out of, out of fear. But when they're ready to open those doors, they open those doors, and when they're ready to let someone else in on what's behind those doors, then they're ready to let them in. Um, and disclosure, anyone who lets you into that space, like don't treat it lightly because that means you're a big part of their, you know, a big part of their life. They're telling you something that no one else knows. They're telling you something that is, you know, kind of a secret to them. So it's not meant to be made fun of. And, and, you know, like we like to make jokes and be a little bit more lighthearted, especially when we don't understand something. But, you know, when you have someone who is truly opening up to you, don't don't dismiss that, you know, just accept it for whatever it is, because for the most part, I think when guys are trying to reach out for help or, you know, trying to talk to people, try not to be weak in their mind, they don't know how to say the right words because they don't know what to say. They're just trying something and sometimes they get dismissed. Um, being lighthearted and joking around, trying to get the words out. Um, and I think that kind of leads people to think that no one cares. No one wants to listen. No one gives a damn about what they're feeling. Life goes on without them, you know, type of situations. And it's not true. There are, there's a lot of people here to listen. Uh, there's a lot of people who actually care about Mm -hmm. what's going on. Finally, Keontae, where are you with everything now? Where are you in your life with not only, you know, recovery, but um, how you've learned to deal with the new normal that is your everyday existence? And, um, you know, where are you as far as your service with the Marine Corps? Um, where am I? I'm, I'm in a good, I'm in a, I'm in a better place. Um, I, I have my bouts of depression here and there. I have my days where it kind of goes up and down. Um, and a lot of that kind of is a constant self-awareness. Uh, you know, I might wake up some days. I don't have any nightmares anymore, thank God. Um, but I might wake up some days where it might not be, <clears throat> it might not, it might not be right. Some days are just kind of off, not, not really sure why. Um, and I'll try to have, you know, do a little backlog of like, well, did I sleep good? Okay, I slept good, ate good, had some water. Did I go to the gym? Oh, shit, I didn't go to the gym. All right, I need to go to the gym. I need to get out, be active. For me, that's just what works. Um, but then there's days where 
I can do that same checklist and nothing's working. Nothing, nothing's making sense, but I'm feeling depressed. These dark thoughts are coming back to my mind. I'm feeling worthless all of a sudden. Nothing makes sense. Um, and being self-aware with these situations, you know, like even going through these checklists, it's like, all right, well, I'm going to go inside, play some video games. I'm not going to bother anyone right now because I just need to ignore this for the day. Tomorrow's going to be a new day and rinse and repeat. Mm-hmm. Um, some, some, sometimes those, those last few days, sometimes those last, you know, a few hours, and then the worst ones, they last weeks or, or they last a week for me. Um, and the weak ones were, are the worst because trying to figure out what's going on, trying to figure out why you're waking up sad, why you don't feel great, why everything just feels dull, boring, you know, just not fun. Um, one is tiring. And two, when something doesn't make sense, it's even more frustrating because you, you've worked, at least for me, I've worked so hard to just manage this and, and the way that I look at managing it is it, if it's if it's something that's going to be with me, then I need to manage it. And this is not something that I have to take medication for, in my opinion, um, because if it's if it's with me for the rest of my life, then understanding it is managing it, not medication is managing this thing that I'm choosing not to pay attention to. Um, so. You know, the the weak ones are the worst ones because it's just you get tired and that's where you kind of get bogged down with the most because your life doesn't stop. Um, I still have my, you know, chores, taking care of my pets, going to school. Um, I still got things I have to do, and but I don't want to do any of those things. I just want to stay at home and not do a damn thing most of the time. But doing all those things, it becomes kind of a burden, which is a simple, simple task becomes a burden or just not interesting. And then those, and then once nice night falls, those, that's when it's just like, you just kind of in your own mind, you just, that's when it gets real. And that's when it really takes a bigger toll and bigger test to like, all right, I just need to get to the next day, just get to the next day, go to the gym, work out. All right. Not feeling it's in the hot tub, keep doing the same thing just do something slightly different. Um, sometimes hang out with my friends, like, hey, let's go grab some food. You know, like, we'll just choose a place, get some food, get out of the house, even though I don't want to force myself to get out of the house, because these are the things that work for me. And I know what happens when I don't do these things. I actually go down this spiral, and it's twice as much work to get out of it, where I'm feeling way more worthless, way more non-caring thoughts are just like suicidal thoughts are just rampant. And that's where life is just, it's no longer fun for anyone around me. Right. Um, but it, but it required, you know, trial and error, trial and error to understand these things. Um, but and 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 none of this was done by myself. It, it sounds like a lot of this was done by myself, but it's not. Like the community, like Challenge Athlete Foundation, Super Five Fun, you know, Range of Motion Projects, Home Front Troops. Like they all supported my athletic career pursuit. Um, and because of them, like I've been able to 
understand these things while managing these things while understanding myself in this process. So none of this was just like done on my own. This is just a lot of self-awareness is on my own, but none of like, I wouldn't have understand any, any of these things without those organizations kind of, you know, being there, supporting me, helping me, getting me out and doing different environments. Um, mm-hmm. But no, no, I, I'm, I'm in a much better place because I can understand, you know, even actually, you know, Speaking of it, it just kind of just hit me the other day, actually, where I was home and just kind of just like, man, it's just one of those days. All right, take my dog for the walk. Uh, I don't really feel it. Pop an audio book. Oh, God, this is boring. You know, just situations like that, that kind of just hit me. And But the one thing that was kind of evident was I was in the gym. I just got back from Ecuador, climbing from range with the Range of Motion Projects, summoning code epoxy with uh, Kirstie Ennis, who's a great friend of mine. Yep, she's Kirstie. a former guest on the podcast. Oh, shout out to her organization, Christina's Foundation, amazing organization, amazing woman. Um, hard to keep up with her, even though she's missing a leg on, on two crutches. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to keep up with her. Um, but I realized that even, you know, I was in the gym. And that was one thing I was just like, all right, I'm not going to be in the gym. I was actually, I got back sick. I was I actually it was in the ER like a week ago, um, right when I returned back um, for an infection or like a stomach bug or whatever uh, that's doing better now. But, you know, I wasn't in the gym and I knew, and, I, and that's all I thought of while I was here. I was like, oh, I want to go to the gym. I want to go to the gym. I was like, no, take it easy, rest, rest. And like I said, you know, like those moments where it's like you feel worthless, dark, just not happy, starts to kind of slowly creep in. I'm like, nope, just not in the gym. I'm just out of my swing, give myself some time. And I don't, I don't overstress myself. Um, so, so those still persist, and that that and that's the purpose of even mentioning any of that was it still does persist day to day. Just right. I've learned different ways for myself to manage them, and like I said, you know, if it, it, it's defined as a long term thing or a lot, like it's going to be with you for the rest of your life, and then if that's the case, you can manage it. You really can. There, there's, there's, in my opinion, no way you can't manage it. You right. just have to find different ways and techniques that work for you. Well, I think yeah. that's perfectly said. I think that you hit on all the right notes, and I certainly, uh, you know, if I can, congratulate you on everything that you've been able to overcome because it is a lot, and we don't give enough credit and enough credence to the fact that you know guys who have to and gals who have to deal with all this, um, it's incredibly tough to overcome. And when you get to the top of that mountain and you start walking back down, it's a it's a sense of relief, but you know it's not it's not, it's not a destination. It's a journey, right? You're continually struggling yeah. every day and continuing to fight. And to that end, certainly thank you for not going down that dark road that so many other veterans, unfortunately, have gone down, that you're still here fighting the fight and getting a good message out there to everybody because that's part of the reason why we do this is to have your story um, hopefully inspire somebody else and for somebody to realize, hey, I'm just like Keontae. I, I have the same things going on. and there is something I can do about it. So to that end, I certainly thank you for your message. It's been, it's been powerful and honest. Well, thank you. I, I mean, that's, that's what I, I hope to share. Like if I do nothing else on this earth, I do nothing else for anybody is to share my experience from what I know and what I've experienced and get it out there to the world, the best of my ability, because we, we like to think that we're the only people in this world who goes through things by ourselves or alone or the, we're the only person who's ever in this world experienced this situation by ourselves. No one else has ever experienced this. That's just not true. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
for anyone who would think that's true, it's crazy because it's not. And we all have different experiences, but we can all relate. We can all understand each other to some extent. It all depends on how we decide to vocalize that. And if we want to be understood, because we can word things to where, oh, you just don't, you don't understand me. We can word it in a way where no one's going to understand us. But, you know, it comes down to, do you want to be understood? Do you want to, do you want others to understand you? And if you do, then you, you vocalize it that way. And if you don't, you, you become closed off, shut off, however you decide to stay away from people understanding you. Um, but at the end of the day, we all can be understood one way or another. Uh, we just have to decide. It just comes to a point to when are we going to open ourselves up to that? Sure. And that's not being, you know, and that's to me, that's, that's being real with yourself. You're, you're, you're not a one-off. You're a unique individual on your own rights, but your situation itself, other there's a lot of people in this world. I'm sure you'll come across someone who's experienced the same right, thing. Going through the same exact thing. Well, listen, yeah. brother, I certainly appreciate everything that uh, you've done for our country, but I appreciate your time with the podcast, and uh, I wish you nothing but the best and continued success and keep the athletic feats up, and certainly God bless, and thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Oh, thank you for having me on. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Headlines and hot takes, they have their place. But at our podcast, ESPN Daily, we don't just skim the surface of sports. Dude, I mean, this clearly transcends blood feuds, <laughs> rivalries, sports. This is something far, far deeper than that. I'm your host, Pablo Torre. And every day, we try to dive into the stories behind the athletes. The picture of him in the dugout afterwards just looked like a guy who'd had his heart ripped out. Listen to ESPN Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Guys, as we get older, we all start to notice minor changes in sexual performance. It happens, but you can stop Mother Nature. Whether you're just starting to develop erectile dysfunction symptoms or are suffering from chronic ED, call Metro Men's Health. Skip the pills and injections. They're only temporary and lose effectiveness over time. Metro Men's Health treats the root cause of ED, lack of blood flow, so it works long term. Metro Men's Health uses the most advanced and clinically proven wave therapy on the market to actually repair aging blood vessels and restore them to a younger you. Get your spontaneity and your confidence back with safe, effective treatment from Metro Men's Health. Visit MetroMensHealth.com or call 833-687-0700. Don't let ED get worse. Call Metro Men's Health today. 833-687-0700. 833-687-0700. Zero seven zero zero.